You'll remember that there was a, a TV show that played from 1960 to 1964, and it was about two guys who were traveling across the United States in a Red Corvette on what has come to be called the Mother Road. Does anybody remember the name of the TV show? Yeah, Carl? Route 66, right. How many of you remember that, that show? I saw reruns of the thing. I didn't see it the first time around. But uh, it's called the Mother Road because it was really the first paved highway that would take you from one coast to another. It took you from the north coast of the United States, beginning in Chicago, Illinois, and took you all the way to Los Angeles, California, actually Santa Monica, California. It covered eight states, 2,448 miles, three time zones, and this is something that was built back in 1937 and for its day. It was just an incredible thing. And, of course, many of you know that that, uh, that road carries a lot of history and at least modern history in our country and there's a lot of nostalgia and all of that kind of stuff songs that have been sung about it and all of that but strangely strangely enough god has uh god has somewhere that he wants to to take us and the route that he uses to take us there is route 66 the 66th book of the Bible, and it covers a time period of over 3,000 years and at least three biblical time zones, the church age, the tribulation period, and the millennial reign of Christ. It's, it's God's Route 66, if you will. It's probably, and you can go ahead and be turning there in your Bibles if you haven't already done so. Those of you that may be a guest with us today, you'll find uh, if you don't, didn't bring a Bible, uh, there's one that's been provided for you in the, the pew back. There in front of you, we encourage you to get one of those and follow along with us this morning. But the book of Revelation is is probably the most incredible book in the entire Bible. But the book of Revelation has some other portions of Scripture that are very much related to it, what we're calling Revelation's relations on your outline. The first one is another journey down God's Route 66, Isaiah 66. And turn to the book of Isaiah, if you will, not to 66 right now, but Isaiah chapter 1. Those of you who are using the Pew Bibles, uh, it's page 552, and I'll try to help you this morning to steer your way along the road so you don't fall in a ditch somewhere out there. Page 552, Isaiah chapter 1. Now there's something you need to understand about the, the book of Isaiah, and that is the book of Isaiah is a microcosm of the Bible. Some of you are going, okay, so what's up with a microcosm? Okay, well, what a microcosm is, is it is a small representation of the whole of something. For example, we call New York City a microcosm of the world. Because you see, the world is comprised of all kinds of various nations. And in New York City, what you find is that is a city that is comprised of virtually every people group from virtually every major nation on the entire in the entire world. I mean, you can go to New York City and literally see the world, at least the world of, of people. It's a microcosm of the world. Uh, we a pyramid, and maybe this might more graphically put it in your mind. A pyramid, and what's interesting about a pyramid 
It is the very last piece that you put on a pyramid when you're building that thing. We call it a, a what? We call it a capstone, right? And it is, that very last piece is a microcosm of the entire pyramid. You understand that? That very top piece, if you begin to just look at it, it is in small what the whole of that pyramid is, okay? And in that same way, the book of Isaiah is a microcosm of the Bible. The Bible is comprised of 66 different books, and it's broken up into two basic sections that we call the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament has 39 books, and the New Testament has 27 books. And strangely enough, you check out the book of Isaiah, and it is comprised of 66 different chapters. And what's wild is the content that you find in these chapters. You're in Isaiah chapter 1, and look in verse 2. And what is it talking about? It's talking about the heavens and the earth. Isaiah chapter 1 begins the same way the Bible begins in the first book, the book of Genesis, speaking of the heavens and the earth. And if you make your way, and do it with me, if you make your way on over past the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, and you come to the 40th chapter, look if you would at verse 3. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. And coincidentally enough, you come past the first 39 books of the Old Testament to the 40th book of the Bible, which of course is the Gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. And you know how it begins? Matthew chapter 3, verse 3 says, listen to it and look at your verse right there. Matthew chapter 3, verse 3. The voice of him crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. And from here in the book of Isaiah, if you continue on to the next, through the next 27 chapters, to the last chapter of Isaiah, chapter 66, take a guess what's going on. Look at chapter 66 and verse 15. It says, For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with His chariots like a whirlwind to render His anger with fury and His rebuke with flames of fire. And what event is that? The second coming of Jesus Christ to this planet. Look at the middle of verse 18, still describing that day. I will gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and see My glory. And check out verse 22. What is it? New heavens and new earth. And you come to the 66th book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and how does it end? Revelation 19, the second coming of Christ. He comes in flaming fire, exercising His judgment upon the nations. He stands revealed in all of His glory. And the Scripture says in the book of Revelation that every eye shall see Him. Revelation chapter 21 and 22 is the establishment of the new heaven and the new earth. My, my, my. What a coincidence, right? Not on your life. Way back in the book of Isaiah, God showed you that you'd have 66 books in your Bible, that there'd be a split between the 39th and the 40th, and He showed you way back there exactly how things are going to end up 
Look at verse 1 of Isaiah 66. Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. And that's exactly how the 66th book of the Bible ends. So, as we continue through our study of the book of Revelation, we'll be coming to the book of Isaiah quite a bit to compare Scripture with Scripture. But there's another book that's perhaps even more related to the content of the book of Revelation that we'll almost constantly be referring to as we make our way through this study, and that's the book of Daniel. Why don't you turn over there for just a second, if you would. For those of you using the Pew Bibles, just turn to page 708. Just a little bit over to the right, for those of you that are using your own and not well-schooled on where the books of the Bible are. Daniel, and turn with me to chapter 12, if you would. Daniel chapter 12. Now, the, the book of Daniel would be the Old Testament counterpart of the book of Revelation. Because Daniel also received prophecies concerning the end times. Look at chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. And Jesus, you'll remember in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 21, used almost the same exact words when he talked about that time of tribulation on this planet that he said there's never been anything like it, there'll never be anything like it after it. Same exact thing that Daniel is writing about. Right right here in the book of Daniel. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and, and listen very carefully, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And I, I, want, I, I don't know who you are, I don't know how you got here this morning, but I do want you to realize that those are the basic choices of life right there. There are some people who will experience, experience for all eternity everlasting life There are others who will experience everlasting condemnation. And look at verse 3. May they be wise. You better wise up, God's saying. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament that that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. And you know what? what? What Daniel was talking about here is the same basic content as the book of Revelation. But there's one difference that you need to note. Daniel writes all this this stuff here that the Lord is telling him to write. And he comes through all 12 chapters now. And and watch watch what he tells him in verse 4. But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book even to the time of the end. Now just stay there in, in, in Daniel for just a second, but just listen. Over in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, where... Now John is closing out all of the things that he has written concerning these very same things that Daniel has written, just in more more detail. And John comes through all of the prophecy concerning the end times, and the Lord says to John, through his angel, which, by the way, he says there in Revelation chapter 19 and chapter 22 is, is one of the prophets... This angel that's been showing him everything is one of the prophets, and just take a wild stab at which one you think that might be. Okay, and 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 the Lord says to 
through that prophet to John in Revelation 22 and verse 10, he writes, he says to him, seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. In Daniel, he tells him in verse 4, seal this, seal the prophecy. He comes to the end of the book of Revelation and he says, seal it not. And Daniel says in, in verse 8, look here in chapter 12, again of Daniel chapter 12, verse 8, Daniel says, uh, okay, I, I got this, I got this stuff all written down like you told me, but, but I don't know, I don't know what all this, this, this meant. I mean, what, what did I mean when I wrote that, Lord? And, and check out verse 9. And he said, that is, the Lord said, give it up, Daniel. Go thy way. Now, I, I know I used you to write it and all, but, but like I told you in verse 4, the words are closed, up, and sealed, and, and watch this phrase now. Till the time of the end. And you know what? It's just absolutely amazing as we live on the threshold of the events that are talked about in the book of Daniel and in the book of Revelation. It's amazing how much clearer those prophecies are to those of us that are living in during these times than they have been for the vast majority of our brothers and sisters in times past. And that, to me, that's a, a mind-boggling thing because if you know their life our life doesn't touch a candle to most of our brothers and sisters. But when it comes to the book of Revelation, because they were not in the time of the end, when it comes to the prophecies in the book of Daniel, they just couldn't quite see it the way that we can because we are now at that very same time that Daniel is talking about here. The prophecy of Daniel was sealed up until, not the end, but until the what? The time of the end. It's kind of like if you're driving up to Ohio on I-77, and I, 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 most of the time when I'm traveling to the south, I, I, I go the 77 route. And so if you're, if you're down in the south, let's say you're in, down in North Carolina and you're going to be making your way back home up here to, to Tuscarawas County, what you're going to find is as you're coming through North Carolina and you're beginning to, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> come into Virginia, if you've never traveled that way, you'd look up in the distance and up in the clouds and you'd look and you begin to see what looks kind of like a line up there and you're not really for sure if it's the first time you've traveled it, whether it's a cloud or whether that's mountains. You guys know what I'm talking about when you're making that drive there? You come down there and man, it's you start to see it. And it's out there and you really can't make anything out. It's not very clear, but you know what begins to happen? The further you travel, the closer you get to those mountains, the more of the detail you can begin to see in those things. And you begin to see specific things. You see houses and sometimes, I mean, you see kids playing on the sides of those mountains and, you know, all, all kinds of things like that. And that's exactly what the Lord is saying in verse 9. A lot of this, Daniel, people won't understand for centuries. They'll just be, be too far away, but as, as we travel through time, the closer we get to these events, the clearer they'll come into focus and people will begin to make out the details of this stuff. And folks, we are living in that very time. I mean, I've had people out in the foyer say to me, wow, I don't know how you get all this stuff. You know what? I've never read these things in any books. You know what? When you're living at the time of the end, you can begin to see how all of these things fit together, and you gotta love it. Daniel say, says, "Okay, now, now, Lord, what does all this mean?" And when John 
comes along and the Lord is wanting him to write about the very same things that Daniel has just written about. John is caught up and and God wants to, to show him these things and doesn't want them to be sealed and so he calls for himself a prophet. I believe he called, hey, Daniel, come here a minute. Brings old Daniel and says, remember when you were writing your book down there and you got to chapter 12 and you're asking me what all of those things that you were writing meant? I believe he said, well, Daniel, it's time. I'm going to show you these things and then you take what I showed you and I want you to show my boy John. That's, that's what we're, that's what we're dealing with here in the book of Daniel. Very, very closely related to the events in the, the book of Revelation. So, Isaiah 66 is a very near akin to the book of Revelation, as is the book of Daniel. And then there's one other key book that is very much related to the book of Revelation. <clears throat> and that is the book of Genesis. And, and this one is just absolutely mind-boggling. Because where the book of Revelation ends is where the book of Genesis begins. Now, that's weird, isn't it? What this book does, what the book of Revelation does, is it ties the knot. What it does is it takes the Bible and it bends it around to form a circle. Let let me show you what I mean. Uh, In your Bible, and you may want to take the time to do this, I'm looking at the front of my Bible, and our Bibles are kind of laid out just like all of the other books in the world. It begins with a a, a table of contents. And so what they do, like in my Bible, is they list the 39 books of the the Old Testament in, in columns, and then... Uh, sometimes it's parallel columns. They'll put the 27 books of the New Testament. Some of your Bibles may have them all in just one big fat list or maybe one's up at the top through the 39 and then down below with the, the 27. But anyway, you slice it. Most of us have a table of contents where the book of Genesis is, is up here and the book of Revelation is, is somewhere down here. But really, a, a more accurate way to list the books, and I really don't have any problem with the way they listed them here. I'm just telling you, a, a more accurate way to list the books would be to put them in a clock-like circle. That's what's on the top right of your study sheet, if you just look there for a second. If you listed them in a clock-like circle with 66 minutes, as it were, instead of 60, so that Genesis would be the first minute after 12, and, and then you'd have Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers right around to the, uh, the last minute before 12, which would be what? Talk to me, the book of Revelation. So Revelation, then, would be right next to the book of Genesis. And I say that that might be a better way to list the books because those two books of the Bible that are really the the Alpha and Omega of the Bible, the, the beginning and the end, take all of the teaching of all of the rest of the books of the Bible and they bring it all together to dovetail into a, a unity that can only be explained as a book that has come to us from none other than God Himself. When Revelation ends, now check this out, when Revelation ends, man is back to the place he was before he messed everything up through sin in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. You see, it It just fits all together there. Let me show you what what I mean here and follow along on your sheet. In Genesis, we read, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. In Revelation, we read, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. In Genesis, we are told, 
And the gathering of the waters called he seas. In Revelation, we are told, and there was no more sea. In Genesis, God created the sun, the moon, and the day, uh, and the night. In Revelation, there shall be no night there. And the city had no need of the sun, neither the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. In Genesis, man's first home was beside a river. In Revelation, man's eternal home will be beside a river. Chapter 22 and verse 1 says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In Genesis, we find the first Adam with his wife Eve in the Garden of Eden, reigning over all the earth. In Revelation, we find the last Adam, Christ, his wife, the church, in the city of God, reigning over all the universe. In Genesis, we find the first attack of Satan against man. In Revelation, we find the final attack of Satan against man. In Genesis, we find the condemnation of Satan prophesied. In Revelation, we find the condemnation of Satan realized. In Genesis, man hears God say, Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In Revelation, man will hear God say, And there shall be no more curse. In Genesis, the tree of life is denied to sinful man. In Revelation, the tree of life yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. In Genesis, the old earth was punished through a flood. In Revelation, the new earth shall be purified through a fire. In Genesis, Nimrod rebels and founds the city of Babylon. In Revelation, the Antichrist and Babylon are judged and destroyed. In Genesis, God destroys an earthly city, wicked Sodom from the sands. In Revelation, God presents a heavenly city, New Jerusalem from the skies. In Genesis, the patriarch Abraham weeps for Sarah. In Revelation, the children of Abraham will have God himself wipe away all tears from their eyes. Genesis ends with a believer in Egypt lying in a coffin. Revelation ends with all believers reigning forever in eternity where there shall be no more death. And again, do you see? We're right back where we started, how God intended for it to be all along. All right, now let's actually begin our journey down God's Route 66, His 66th book of the Bible that brings us all the way down the road through the church age to our our final destination, home with Him. And you'll notice in verse 1, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1, The book begins, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we are not even five words into this thing before we've got a major problem. Because if you'll look right above verse 1, you'll notice that the full title of this book is the revelation of whom? The revelation of St. John the Divine. Okay, now, now which is it? Is it the revelation of St. John the Divine, as the title suggests, or is it the revelation of Jesus Christ, as specifically spelled out in verse 1? And the answer is yes. It's both. You say, well, okay, how can it be both? Well, 
the, the preposition of doesn't always indicate the subject of a thing. Sometimes it indicates the object of a thing. And in the title, the preposition of is used to indicate the object. And the object, of course, is John. And in verse 1, the preposition of is used to indicate the subject. And the subject is Jesus Christ. Same preposition, two different meanings. You see, John, and some of you are going, whoa, 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 I, I, wasn't, I wasn't real hip in the English and all of that deal with the prepositions and objects and subjects and all that. Basically, this is what it is. John is the messenger of the revelation. He was the one entrusted with the revelation and committed it to writing, but it's not about him. He's not the subject of the revelation. The subject of revelation is Jesus Christ. So you see, it's not about John. It's the revelation about Jesus Christ that God gave to John. Do you see that? It's not that difficult. But it's no problem there. I mean, this is exactly the way that God wanted this thing. And notice the word, Revelation. It's the, the Greek word apocalypsis, and I don't tell you that for any other reason but then to let you know that that's why some people refer to this book as the apocalypse. You know, you, the movie and all of that deal. Apocalypse now. It, it comes from that word, and so that's, you know, I just don't want you to be talking with someone and they're talking to you about the apocalypse and you're like, say what? It, it comes from that word, but since we are just common people will use the word that most people can understand, right? Revelation. As we talked about in the past several weeks, we, as, as we've been setting the foundation for this study, the, the word revelation simply means unveiling. You know, in, in Chicago, uh, Illinois, several years ago, they, they built a new stadium to house uh, the Chicago Bulls and the, the hockey team is at the Blackhawks. Uh, the Chicago Blackhawks, okay? It's, it's called the United Center. And it was right about the time that Michael Jordan was going to be retiring from basketball, and so right out in front of the United Center, and I've been there to see this lovely thing, they've got this statue of Michael Jordan, okay? So it's coming down to the day of the ceremony of this thing. Nobody has seen this statue that they've been, you know, working on for all this time. So all the people are gathered, and here is this thing, and it's got this major covering this major veil, as it were, over the thing. And so it comes time to the ceremony, and Michael Jordan is there, and you know, in the midst of all the thing, the big splash, they lift up that veil, and here is Michael in all of his glory. <laughs> the basketball, the tongue, the whole, the whole shot, you know. And what those men did as they lifted up that veil, it is what the book of Revelation does for us. It removes the veil. It reveals to us Jesus Christ. First of all, it is the unveiling of the person of Christ. The person of Jesus Christ. As we mentioned just a second, a second ago, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is the revelation of His person. You see, when He came to this earth the first time, He came veiled in a body of human flesh. That, that human body veiled who he was. In fact, in Matthew chapter 17, what he does is he takes Peter, James, and John up into a high mountain apart, the Scripture says, and he was transfigured 
before them. And you know what he did? He rolled back the veil of his flesh to reveal to himself or to, to those men who he really was. And when Jesus Christ came to this planet, he was God veiled in a human body. He was in a human body, and yet at the same time, he was 100% God. And he manifested that in a thousand different ways. And the only way that you could see past that veil of flesh, though, was through the eyes of faith. I mean, here was God right in their midst, and yet because of the veil of that human flesh, some of the people that were very, very close to him didn't even recognize who he was. I mean, here was James. He is a guy that grew up in the same house with Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ being his half-brother, and yet somehow, I mean, growing up with... I mean, have you ever thought about what it would be like to grow up in a house with Jesus as your brother? I mean, an absolutely perfect brother? You know, some of you guys had one of those, didn't you? A perfect brother. I mean, what a bummer to go through life with a perfect brother. I mean, he never left his socks in the middle of the floor. He never left a ring in the bathtub. He always took out the trash before he was asked. He never spoke an unkind word to anybody or about anybody. He never made a snide remark. He never talked back to mom and dad. He never talked about things that he shouldn't talk about. He never lied. He never cheated. He never stole anything. And somehow, growing up in that same house, James never really saw who he was until it was all over. And in Mark chapter 6, Jesus came into his hometown. People, people knew him there. And they knew his character. And, and he, he comes into that hometown. He starts giving them the words behind his veil of flesh. And Mark chapter 6 and verse 3 says they were offended at him. Offended at him. In John's account of the, the same story in John chapter 6 and verse 42, they say, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it that he saith, I came down from heaven? They couldn't see it. They're, they were offended. The nation of Israel was so blind that they called for him to be crucified, that a, a prisoner would be released so that God in a human body could be nailed to a cross be crucified. But you see, one day, one of these days, folks, it's going to be completely different. A whole different story. Jesus Christ is coming back to this planet, and when He comes, He is coming this next time without the veil. He is coming in the full majesty and glory of the Father, and He is going to smash the opposition of the world which First Thessal or Second Thessalonians says includes every person who does not know God and every person who has not obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the scripture says in Revelation 19, He is coming back and He is going to smash the world like grapes. And He will rule the world with a rod of iron. And He's going to come back to this earth and He's going to rule and reign with all of the hosts of heaven behind Him. And His deity, which is known to those looking through the eyes of faith now, is going to shine in blazing glory like the light of the sun then. Every eye shall see Him. And He will be unveiled. 
Every person will know He is exactly who He says that He is. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2, John said, We shall see Him as He is. And that is what is re- unveiled for us in the book of Revelation. Jesus Christ revealed the person of Jesus Christ. And above all things, Jesus Christ is central to this entire book. He is the main character. He is the theme. He permeates every chapter, every verse, every word of this entire book. But not only is this book, the book of Revelation, the unveiling of the person of Christ, it is the unveiling of the purposes of God. Look at verse 1 again. The purposes of God. Verse 1 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto Him, and here it comes, to show unto His servants things which must shortly come to pass. Now you talk to most people about the book of Revelation, whether they be pastors, missionaries, college professors, or just average folks like all of us, and they, most people today are saying, oh, the book of Revelation, man, you know, it's, it's so hard to understand. It's got all that symbolism and, and all those signs and all of those things. Nobody could ever really figure all of that out, and yet look, look at it again. He says the reason that He gave us the Revelation wasn't to, to mystify us or freak our, our, our minds out, but rather to explain the truth of God more clearly to show unto His servants things which must shortly come to pass. The book is intended to illumine the purpose of God in the future so that His servants can adequately prepare themselves for those events. That's the whole design of this thing. You see, if I'm a servant of Jesus Christ, and I know what's in store for the future, as it's revealed here in the book of Revelation, you know what 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2 says? It says that every man, listen to that, every man that hath that hope in him, that is in Jesus Christ, purifieth himself even as he is pure. You know what happens to you when you begin to have the book of Revelation unveiled for you? And you begin to see what's going to be taking place in the future? Every man that has the hope in him, purifies his life. And that's why God wants to reveal this book to you. So that you will purify your life. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 11 says, Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. And that's what we find in the book of Revelation. He says, Seeing that these are all the things that are going to be taking place in the future, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness. In verse 14 of Second Peter 3, he says, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of Him in peace without spot and blameless. You see, folks, that's what the Lord is wanting. He wants to show you the book of Revelation because He says every man that really is saved, those truths are going to begin to impact his life. It's going to change how you live your life and and what you live for and who you live for and why you do the things that you do. So God wants to show you these things. He wants you to see them. And, And He'll show them to you, He says. 
But there, there's two prerequisites that if you're ever really going to be shown these things, and see these things that the Lord is wanting to see. Number one, if you're ever going to see what He's wanting to show you, you're going to have to approach this book the way that He tells us to approach every book of the Bible. First Corinthians chapter 2 says that you can't know this, this book, the Bible. You can't know it because it is the wisdom of God. And because it is the wisdom of God, it transcends human eyes and human ears and human intellect. It's a spiritual thing, he says. So he tells us then that the Spirit of God has got to step in in this whole equation if you're ever going to get the wisdom of God because it's spiritual. The Spirit of God has got to step in and he says, reveal it to us. You got it? You know what the Spirit of God's got to do? He's got to unveil this truth, the wisdom of God for us. And here's how he says he does it. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13. By comparing things spiritual with things spiritual. In other words, by comparing Scripture with Scripture. And listen, if you come to the book of Revelation and you try to understand this thing without employing that, that overarching biblical rule of Bible study, you'll lose your neck in this book. You'll come to... The verse 12, you're in chapter 1 of Revelation. Or would you get there if you're not? You come to verse 12 of chapter 1 where John said he saw seven golden candlesticks. And in verse 16, the one in the midst of the candlesticks had in his right hand seven stars. And if you do not employ that overarching principle of Bible study, you'll be sitting around with people and they'll say, well, hey, what do you think? What do you think those golden candlesticks are? There's, there's seven of them. I mean, what, what do you think they are? And someone says, well, you know, I, I don't know, man. I, Snow White had seven dwarfs, and so maybe that's, maybe that's what this whole gig is. Maybe that's what, what they are. Hey, good answer. Never thought about that. Well, what about the seven stars? What could they be? Well, I, I think it doesn't matter what anybody thinks. What does the Bible say when you compare Scripture with Scripture? He spells it out in verse 20. Look at it. The mystery of the seven stars, which thou sawest in my right hand, is the seven, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks, which thou sawest, are the seven churches. And so you see, by comparing to a scripture, right here in the very same passage, he lets us know exactly what it's all about. And what we'll find in the book of Revelation is that if it's not clearly spelled out in the passage, what you're going to find is that there are 404 verses in the entire book of Revelation, 404, and out of those 404, 278 of them contain references to the Old Testament. They're just bringing you back to truth that God has already laid out most of the time in the book of Genesis and in Psalms and Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Joel, uh, Zechariah. So you see, the book isn't hard to understand. God wants you to be able to understand this book. The purpose of this book was to show you these things, to unveil these things for you, and it'll happen for you if you let the Bible define itself. So if he's going to show us what he wants us to see, number one, the first prerequisite, we've got to approach his book his way. And number two, you better make sure that you're one of his servants. Notice again in verse 1. He gave the revelation to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. You see, if you're here this morning and you, you're not saved, you've never been 
born again. You, you have never had your dead spirit, which died because of your sinfulness. And all of us were born into this world that same way. But if you have never been born again, then what is taking place inside of you is your spirit is dead. And you can't understand this stuff. The same place we were just talking about there in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 just a minute ago. Verse 14 says, But the natural man, that's just a natural guy born into this world. And a natural man is somebody who was born spiritually dead. And he says, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. And you see, if, you're, if you've never been born again, your spirit is dead. And so you'll never see what the Lord Jesus Christ is wanting to show you about the very near future here in the book of Revelation so that you can prepare yourself. But now listen to this. If you are here this morning, and even as I'm going through all of this this morning and I'm talking about being born again and how you were born into this world, a sinner, spiritually dead, and if you're sitting there this morning and you're hearing those words and as I'm saying those things, you're saying to yourself, man, that's, that's me, I... I've never come to that place in my life. I want you to understand something. God is revealing that to you. You understand that? He is taking His truth and He is revealing that to you so that you can prepare yourself. And that's what this is all about. So listen, as we're going through this this morning and we're making our way through, listen very carefully because if God is speaking to your heart this morning, this could be the day that changes your entire destiny. Not just in this life, but in the, the life to come. That's, that's a revelation. The Spirit of God reveals those kind of things. Most of you, though, are sitting here this morning and oh, yeah, you're waiting for me to get finished talking to all of these people that are here this morning that, that don't know Christ because you're, you're thinking, well, I know I'm saved. And, and that's, that's great. And you know what? I'm, I'm as serious as a heart attack. I hope you are. I, I genuinely hope that you are saved. But if you are, could you prove that to me out of verse 1? Because Look at what he calls those who are genuinely saved in verse 1. What does he call us? Servants. Based on, on your life and your service for Christ, and, and, and you know what? Let, let's just go back in the last month. Okay, Let, let's all do this. In the last 30 days of our life, we're just going to go back and look at our life, look at the service that we render to Christ. What would you offer as proof that you are a servant of Jesus Christ? If they arrested you, as the old adage goes, if they arrested you for being a servant of Jesus Christ, would there be sufficient evidence to convict you of the crime? What are you going to bring in as, as evidence? Now, now just, just check this out. This is not deep stuff here, but boy, man, it, it, it needs to cut deep into this church, I will tell you that. A, a servant is someone who carries out the will of his master. A, a servant is, is someone who is not their own. 
They have been bought with a, a price. And, and, and some of you, you, you claim to be Christians. I'm saved. But your life is totally lived for you. You're constantly thinking in terms of me and my and, and mine. And you do what you want to do. You live for the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. You love the world and the things of the world. You seek those things. Your affections are on them. You, you don't pray. You don't read your Bible. Bless your hearts. Some of you come into this room, and, and I, I watched it today. Some of you come into this room, and during the worship time, you don't even you don't even make an attempt to open your mouth in praise to God, and yet you're saved. You're saved. You, you, my friend, are a servant of Christ. You don't tithe. You don't witness, folks. If you're genuinely saved, you know what you are. You're a servant. A servant. Of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. Can you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior without being His servant? Can you? Again, it's it's obvious that some of you, some of you think so. And, and I love you. And, and I'm telling you this not not because I'm trying to get anything off my chest. I love you. And I, I just I can't figure out for the life of me how you claim to be a Christian. I want to know, where do you go in this book? Where do you go to get the assurance of, of your salvation? Now listen, I, I, I do not believe that anybody who is genuinely, if anybody has genuinely been born again by the Spirit of God, I don't believe that those people can lose their salvation. But I'll just tell you this, I would not want to be trading places with anyone whose life does not evidence the fact that they are a servant of Christ when that trumpet sounds, would you? I mean, you just go through the Bible. Paul has to write to the Corinthians. The same thing that he needs to write to some of us in this room this morning. What? Know ye not that you're not your own, for you've been bought with a price and... Peter writes over there about what that price was. You know what it was? It was not just his blood. It was his precious blood. The precious blood of Jesus Christ purchased you out of your sinfulness and the bondage that Satan held you captive in this world system in. And you were bought out of that thing with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And he says, therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. Hey, if you're saved, whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not, you're a servant. It just comes down to whether or not you are obedient or not. First John chapter 2 and verse 3, listen to it. Hereby we do know that we know Him. Here's how we know. If we keep his commandments. See, that's where assurance comes from. Obedience. Submitting your will to the Lordship of Christ. And some of you say, well, 
I, I, I prayed the prayer back in, I believe it was 57. You know what? I, I prayed a prayer in 1972. But you know what? I don't go back to my prayer as the assurance for my salvation. Because you know what it tells me to do in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5? Written to believers in Jesus Christ. Examine yourself whether ye be in the faith. And you know what? Nowhere in your Bible, you, you could not take me to a place where it's going to take you back to a prayer that you, paid, you prayed. What it's going to do is going to call your life into account and ask you, are you obedient to Christ? Hereby, by this, we do know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. And you know what? You may be saved, and you may not be keeping them, but I will tell you this, you can't get the assurance of your salvation out of this book. Jesus said in John chapter 6 and verse 38, But I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of Him that sent me. And now that you have been bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, folks, that's your testimony right there. You are not on this planet to do your own will, but the will of Him that saved you. Jesus came down, do you remember? He went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And you know what He was coming to do? To talk about His will. And His will was not at all to be separated from His Father. But He said, nevertheless, what? Thy will be done. And whether you realize it or not, folks, Every single day of your life, you walk into that same garden. The garden of your will versus God's will. And all those who are servants come and yield their will to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And notice something else that he says about these events that must come to pass. He says, which must shortly come to pass. Now, turn back to the book of Romans for just a second. Romans chapter 16. I remember when I would be a little kid and we'd go on vacation. And you know how those all-day drives can be, you know. I mean, it, you got up at 6 o'clock in the morning and you're, you know, you're in the car and you're heading down the road and it's 10 o'clock and, man, you just feel like you've had all you can stand and you're asking how much further. Oh, and they start telling you at 10 o'clock, and they ain't planning on stopping until, you know, 6 o'clock that night. Oh, we'll be there shortly, you know. I found out that that term shortly is a, a relative term. But I want you to see what Paul says as he's closing out this, this letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 16, in verse 20, it says, And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet, check it out, shortly. And of course, he is going to do that at the, the second coming. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 talked about this time when, when Jesus Christ would bruise the head of, of Satan. When the God of peace is going to bring peace on earth and goodwill toward men for the first time in 6,000 years. And, and notice the paradox here. The God of peace is going to bring peace through the bloodiest battle that has ever been fought on this planet, and the end result is going to be, Revelation chapter 20 and verse 2, that Jesus Christ is going to lay hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. 
And almost 2,000 years ago now, Paul said, look at it again, Paul said that this event would come to pass shortly. John, okay, go back to Revelation now. John writes about the same events in, in the book of Revelation. And he says in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1 that these are the things which must shortly come to pass. Oh, man, I guess these guys miss, miss that one. No. They were just writing what God told them to write. But you've got to remember something. This is God's book. And God doesn't view time the way that we do. And from God's vantage point, shortly is a perfect description of when these things are going to take place. We've seen in the last several weeks that God said in Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 8 that with Him one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as what? One day. And so you see when Paul and John wrote, though the event was almost 2,000 years away when they wrote that it would take place Shortly, they could say that because from God's vantage point, the event was just a couple of days away. Right? Day or a thousand years is as a day. But I'll tell you this. In 1997, it doesn't matter whose vantage point you're looking at this from. Whether it be God's or man's, these events are going to happen shortly. But recognize this also, that shortly has another shade of meaning here in, in verse one of, of Revelation 1, and, and that is the actual time period in which the events in Revelation will take place. I mean, once you hit the rapture in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, all the events that he shows us that must come to pass all the way to chapter 19, which is, again, the vast majority of this entire book, they all come to pass shortly. It's just a seven-year period of time that all of these events from Revelation chapter 4 to chapter 19 take place. And from God's vantage point, notice this also in the, the phrase there, these events aren't possibilities. Notice verse 1 says, which must shortly come to pass. You see, these things must come to pass because He already foreshadowed them in Isaiah chapter 66. He already began to outline them in the book of Daniel. He already showed us how it was on the earth before man's fall in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And He gave to us in Acts chapter 3 the promise of the times of restitution of all things. And so you see, these things that are written in the book of Revelation, these are things that not might possibly come to pass. No, these are the things that must, the things that will surely come to pass. And they will come to pass exactly the way that this book says they, that they will, to the absolute letter and every single detail of every single verse and every single word in this entire thing, just like we saw last week with all of the prophecies concerning the first coming of Christ, all of them took place exactly the way that the Scripture foretold that they would. It would be no difference with the ones concerning the second coming of, of Christ. They will all come to pass exactly the way that the book of Revelation says that they will, and this must be so. But not only is this the unveiling of the person of Christ and the unveiling of the purposes of God, it also, in verse 1, is the unveiling of the process of transmission. He unveils to us exactly how this revelation came to us. He gives us the, the chain of messengers God used. Look at verse 1 again. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave 
to him, and look at the end of the verse, and he, that's Jesus Christ, sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. So do you see it? It came from God the Father to God the Son through his angel to John in approximately 90 to 96 A.D., John would have been a very elderly man at this period of time in his life, somewhere between 80 and 90 years old. Years old. And as we'll see in, the, in, in next week in verse 4, John gives the message. Okay, it comes to John. John then gives the message to the seven churches, and the seven churches have passed it down to us. So there's no doubt about whether this book is inspired or not. God the Father tells you that in the very first breath of the book. He tells you it is from Him, and from Him to Christ, and from Christ to the angel, and from the angel to John, and from the John, and from John to the seven churches, and from the seven churches to us. And that is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we'll do this very quickly. We're, we're almost done, believe it or not. I know that you're looking at the rest of your outline going, whoa, the rest of this is going to come very quickly. Let's do it. But now notice in verse 2 the record of John. We saw the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now the record of John. John tells us that he bore record of three things. First of all, the record of the Word of God. Verse 2 begins, who bear record of the Word of God. And John is letting us know this wasn't his idea, this wasn't his invention, these aren't even his words. This is the Word of God. Again, another claim to divine inspiration of this book. John says, look, I'm just bearing record of the Word of God. Secondly, John says, I'm bearing record of the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, we know what the Word of God is, but what is the testimony of Jesus Christ? Well, rather than me just tell you what I think it means, let's let the Bible define itself. Turn over to chapter 19 of Revelation. Revelation 19, and look with me at verse 10. John says, And I... Okay, that's John. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And this is not God. This is the angel that was showing him all of these things. John is so overwhelmed by all of this. I mean, man, he just he hits the deck to worship the angel. And he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant, and I am thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. And watch this definition now. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That's the testimony of Jesus. The spirit of prophecy. You say, well, what does that mean? It means the testimony of Jesus is the ability to foretell the future. You know how you know that Jesus is God? Because he has the ability to do what nobody but God can do. Foretell the future. Write down the reference, Isaiah 41, verses 21 to 26. We won't take the time to turn there, but I want you to get the reference down. Isaiah 41, verses 21 to 26. And basically what God says is, now listen, if you're God, then do this for me. Tell me what's going to take place in the future, and I'll believe you. And he uses that and holds that up as this is how you know that I'm God. It's the testimony of Jesus Christ. He has the ability to foretell the future. And John says, I bore record of that. 
the testimony of Jesus. And then there's a third thing John said he bore record of, the record of the things seen by John. He, he said at the end of verse 2, he bare record of all things, watch this now, that he saw. And it's very important that, that you understand this. What John is writing in this book, he, he's not writing about a dream that he had. He's not writing about a vision that he had while he was in some trance-like state. He says, I am bearing record of all things that I actually saw. What you need to understand is John experienced the future. And folks, that's the incredible thing about God, or one of the zillion incredible things about God. And that is, he's not locked into time like we are. So, and it, my mind can't quite comprehend this, but it's no problem for him to pull back the veil and allow John to see right into the future and then to bear record of all things that he saw. But realize this, he's a man that is living in the last part of the first century and he is looking at things and then bearing record of them, writing those things that he was looking at. He is writing about things that he has seen in the last part of the 20th century or the first part of the 21st century. And so he does not use terminology that we would use today because he doesn't know what we call things. He's seen all of these things and what he does is he describes them. And you know what? If you just look around and you begin to take the book of Revelation, you'll find out he's describing things that we can look at right now and go, aha, that's what he was looking at. That's what he saw in the very time that we're living in. So he's not going to use the same terms, but he's going to describe them using things that he would be able to associate with. So John gives us in the book of Revelation the record, the record of the Word of God, the record of the testimony of Jesus Christ, and the record of the things he saw. And then lastly, let's look just briefly in verse 3 of Revelation chapter 1, the reward of the book. This is the only book of the New Testament that promises a special blessing for what you do with it. Verse 3, by the way, just happens to be one of seven times in the book where it promises you a blessing. And this first one, verse 3, is a threefold blessing. First of all, he says, Blessed is he that readeth. Blessed is he that readeth. Notice that both the pronoun and the verb there are singular. And the reason I make that distinction is because you'll notice in the second blessing there, the pronouns change. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy. And you see, you've got to understand, folks, that for most of what has been the, the church age, most people in the last 2,000 years have been illiterate. And most people, I mean, it's just been in modern times where people have owned their own copy of the Scriptures. Most of the church age, people would come to church and if they had portions of the Scripture, what would happen is they would come to church and they would read the Bible to the people. One man would be standing before them reading the Bible and all of the people would be out there. They would be hearing the words. And that's what he's, he's talking about, about here. And he says, Blessed is he... That, that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy. But, but notice the next one. He says, and keep those things which are written therein. You see, it's not just enough to, to read the words. And he's saying that the reader is going to be blessed in doing so. 
And the people who hear, they'll be blessed in being those that hear. But the real issue is keeping the words that you're reading or the words that you're hearing. Obeying what is written. In John chapter 13 and verse 17, Jesus didn't say, If you know these things, happy are ye. He didn't stop there. He said, If you know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. The issue is doing what you know. Doing what you hear. Doing what you read. Keeping the things that are written. In James chapter 1, verse 22, James says, But be ye doers of the word, and not what? Hearers only deceiving your own selves. So understand, the issue is not just a matter of, of you hearing all of this and I'm going to be blessed. No. You've got to keep the things that are written. And what is wild here is, here, here is a book, the book of Revelation that details for us the most incredible curses and judgments and woes that the world has ever seen. But it begins with the promise of blessing. And you've got to see this morning that the choice is yours. Will you experience the blessing of Revelation or the curses of this book? But understand this. It is up to you. And it depends upon what you do with what you hear, what you read from this book. And your decision has to be made against the backdrop of the last part of verse 3. Look at it. For the time is at hand. You've got a decision to make. But understand this. You don't have long. You know, when I, I was a kid, and I first started getting exposed to Christianity, I, I, I started thinking, you know what? I, I, I'm going to do this getting saved thing. But... uh I'll probably do that after I get married and settle in just a little bit. And you know what? What I found is I wasn't an isolated case on that. Most of the people that I've talked to about the things of Jesus Christ, most of them, most of them plan to do something with them someday. And ladies and gentlemen, we're living at a time where you have no promise about a someday. The time is at hand. And let me tell you, when that trumpet sounds and the church of Jesus Christ is removed off of this planet, there is no person here that will be saved. Because whatever it is that causes you to keep turning off what the Spirit of God is doing in your life to bring you to Himself, God says, I will send you strong delusion." because you turned me off when you could have received. Folks, the time is at hand. All of the things in the book of Revelation are upon us. And you've got a choice. Do you want to be blessed by what you hear? Or do you want to have brought upon you the judgments and the curses of this book? Let's bow our heads together. I want you to listen very carefully. If you're here this morning, you've never received Jesus Christ. My intent is, is not to try to unnecessarily scare you. 
I just want to be very honest with you. Everything that we're talking about here in the book of Revelation is something that will take place in your lifetime based on everything that we have revealed to us in the Word of God. The time is at hand. And you are faced with a decision about what you will do with Jesus Christ. Will you receive Him into your life? Coming to Him with nothing but your sin, bowing before Him, recognizing that He bought you and your redemption with His own blood. He paid for your sin with His own blood. He died your death so that you might have eternal life, so that you might be able to have a relationship with God through Him. And that can happen for you this morning. And Lord, this morning I I pray that you would do your work in in the hearts of of people in this room today. And I pray that there would be people that would be saved. Because as your word went forth, the Spirit of God took it and took away the blinders that Satan has been trying to use to keep them blinded to the light of the glorious gospel of Christ. And I pray today that this would be the day that that light would shine into them and that they would be saved. I pray that you'd help folks to to realize the urgency of this thing and know the, the blessedness that is promised to those who will keep the things that are written in the book of Revelation. We ask these things in Jesus' name.